Can we just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come to God's word together this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, without your word, we would know very little of you. We would know nothing of our Savior. We would know nothing of the promises that you have given us. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word gives us such great hope, such great confidence in you and what you've promised for us. And Father, we pray this morning as we just continue to study your word, that you would just open our eyes and our ears, give us understanding, stir our hearts, Lord, edify us, we pray. Equip us for the work of ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in very interesting times, don't we? Certainly the political landscape has already been alluded to a number of times this morning, um, is one that for many people is causing a lot of alarm and distress and annoyance, really. Um, but, you know, you look around and there's so many decisions that are being made. Um, I'm sure you've, you've heard the news this week about this group in um, Birmingham that are protesting because of what was being taught at a particular school, um, the whole LGBT thing, um, and they're protesting. And then they were banned from protesting. So, you know, there's lots of things going on that we see um, are challenging our belief, our position, where we stand as Christians. You know, and it's not a lot different to the way things were in the early church. Uh, we look at the persecution the early church went through, uh, the challenges they had. Um, we're moving into now in our study, Second uh, Timothy. Now, we're not going to make it into chapter 1 this morning, um, but I just want to go through a few things um, and look at um, just sort of an introduction to this letter uh, that Paul writes. It's the last letter that Paul writes, and so by some commentators, it's kind of considered his last will and testament. Uh, it's his final uh, thoughts and musings, uh, and particularly the things he wants to share with this young pastor, Timothy. Uh, Timothy, in his uh, probably, probably mid-30s, mid to late-30s, um, by the time Paul is writing this, and we'll talk a bit more about those things in a moment. Um, it's interesting the things that Paul covers. Uh, it's always significant, I think, you know, when you get the, you know, to the end of someone's life, the things they, they want to talk about, uh, the things that are the most dear to them typically come uh, across. You know, there's a, a portion of scripture, um, and I can't remember whether I shared this with you or with somebody else recently, um, so I'm just going to share it again. Uh, if you've already heard this, then just, you know. This is just from... Two Chronicles, 14 verse 6. Uh, it says, And he built fenced cities in Judah, for the land had rest. Interesting, isn't it? A time of rest, a time when, you know, there was peace. And he used that opportunity. He knew what was coming. He knew that in the future, there'd be attacks, there'd be challenges coming. He built the fenced cities of Judah, for the land had rest. And he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. You know, in many ways, we kind of have rest now. You know, things are not that bad yet. We're not being persecuted. You know, we're starting to see things happen. We're seeing people arrested on the street for preaching. And sometimes people kind of bring it on themselves. They're not very shrewd in the way they go about conducting themselves and they say some silly things. And, you know, we are called to be as wise as serpents, uh, but as harmless as doves. Um, so there is a mandate for us as well to be careful uh, in what we say, not just to go actively trying to upset people, but at the same time, we need to proclaim the truth. I just think it's interesting. At that time, the Lord gave him this opportunity. Um, last week, Danny Ken, I had the opportunity just to share, very much looking from Jeremiah, uh, the way it was in Jeremiah's day and the way it is in our day. Uh, and there are so many parallels. Um, 
as a result of teaching last weekend, a number of people said, because um, I, I, as you know, I kind of put the slides together and things, and I said I'd send the slides, and a few people said that they couldn't print the slides out because they have something printed. So um, this week I've kind of put together pretty much what I taught last week uh, as a kind of a, a study, um, which um, when I send the email tonight, I'll email out, and you can do with what you will. Um, but really it's just looking at the apostasy that was going on in Jeremiah's day and showing that actually the same things are happening in our day, that we haven't learned, the church hasn't learned so many of the lessons that we should have learned. First um, Corinthians chapter 10, um, Paul encourages the believers um, to learn from the mistakes that Israel made, not to make the same mistakes again. And unfortunately we do. And the reason I'm saying this is because we see all of these things going on in Second Timothy. We see apostasy becoming more and more of a problem uh, in the church at that time. Uh, people departing from that which they heard, that which they'd been taught, uh, and turning aside to fables, turning aside to all things that were just not rooted in Scripture, not rooted in the things that Jesus had said. Um, and it was such a, a sad time in the sense when you look at it. We're, of course, familiar with... The books of the New Testament, we've got the Gospels, obviously Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and then Acts kind of sits uh, really with those as well. Uh, and then we've got all of the, the epistles, epistles, these 13 epistles. Um, uh, some argue that we've got 14 because we like to n- number groups of seven, and we've got Hebrews, which we believe is probably written by Paul as well. Um, but then there's these eight um, Hebrew epistles. Probably we've got 14 epistles by Paul and then another seven uh, we'll see how it numbers, and then obviously the book of Revelation. Um, the two major doctrinal books in the New Testament, of course, are Romans and Hebrews. And Lord willing, um, the plan at the moment is we're obviously going to be starting to cover Second Timothy. Uh, we'll roll on through Titus, uh, Philemon, and then probably go into Hebrews. I think it's a great book to study. There's a lot in there for us to learn. Um, and a lot that's applicable to us in the days in which we live in as well. And then probably roll on from there towards the end of the New Testament, Lord, uh, you know, Lord willing. So, um, the, uh, epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians were written from prison by Paul. And that's interesting when you look at some of the things that Paul says in those, uh, epistles. It seems like rejoice in the Lord always. You know, in the midst of a prison environment. And he's saying, you know what, we should rejoice. Whatever the circumstances. I mean, Paul tells us he'd learned to be content because he'd learned the secret of it all, which was that Jesus is at the center. Uh, and then we've got those pastoral epistles, um, typically 1 to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon as well. I just want to review some of the events of Paul's life because this gives us a good springboard into this study. Uh, and we kind of hopefully draw some things from this. First time we meet Paul uh, is in the book of Acts when we see that he held the coats uh, while Stephen was stoned. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, that that's not a small thing. He was one of the most revered individuals in Israel. These 70 men. I mean, what a, a privileged position he'd had. He was taught by Gamaliel, one of the, the chief uh, rabbis of the day. And of course, we know the story of his conversion, as he's on his way to Damascus to try and imprison these Christians that are, you know, supposedly in his mind, undermining the law of Moses. They're speaking about this Jesus and so on. And Paul, this really zealous, religious individual, just so keen to stand up for God as far as he was concerned, of course he hadn't realized 
It's interesting, the word says converted. I was listening to a commentary this week, and uh, uh, somebody, a Jewish believer was, was talking, and somebody had made the comment to him, when did you become converted? He said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm a Jew. He said, I became completed. He said, Gentiles get converted. And I kind of quite like that because it's very much like Paul. Paul was completed. You know, he already knew half the picture. He knew about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the law. He just hadn't got the last piece of the jigsaw. Hadn't understood how Jesus fits into the equation and, and completes everything. And it's interesting that Paul goes down to the Arabian desert for the next three years or so. Uh, and I, I think, again, the reason Paul went there, what is down there? Not a lot, except, of course, Mount Sinai. You know, Paul now trying to grapple in his own mind with where does the law fit in with this gospel of grace? And Galatians actually really unlocks so much of that for us. Paul in Galatians tells us that the law was a schoolmaster. Pedagogue is the, the Greek word that's used. It's like a chaperone. Somebody who would look after a young child, be like their tutor, would stay with them during those formative years, bringing them to a place of maturity. And that's exactly what the law does. The law is there to bring us to Christ, to show us that we need a saviour. And Paul, no doubt, going down to Sinai, sitting there, no doubt, on that mountain where Moses had received the law, thinking, how do I reconcile this? The law says this, but Jesus said that. And then starting to really piece it together and realize that Jesus really did come to fulfill the law. Because the law speaks about, you know, hatred and lust and those kind of things. And Jesus takes it in the Beatitudes we have in Matthew to the next level and brings it down to an issue of the heart. And in fact, in the book of Romans, Paul himself says, you know, it was when he started to get to that point of thinking about coveting, he realized it wasn't an outward thing that could be observed by other people. It was an inward thing. That God was looking at his heart, not just his conduct, but his heart. And comes, he came to the realization that he was powerless to do anything about the inside and realize that Jesus is the one to deliver him from this, this body of death, from the sin uh, that he was grappling with in his own life. And Romans really unpacks and expounds that for us. I'm sure much of that came to Paul while he was uh, down there in uh, Arabia. But then he comes back to Damascus. And like often we do, uh, very, very keen, very enthusiastic, um, very zealous, but not necessarily stepping out in the will of God at this point. See, God hadn't called him necessarily to, to go and do anything, just to be. And there's a time, you know, when the Jewish, when, when somebody in the Jewish army uh, in the Old Testament uh, got married, do you know what they were to do for the first year? Stay at home. Stay at home with their wife. You know, it, it was a, a really important time. It was recognized as such. God had built this into their law. And when we come to the Lord, you know, often there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. We want to do things, but you know, one of the most important things is to stay, just spend some time with our Lord, some quality time. Get to know the Lord. When, when the Lord's ready, the Lord will raise you up in ministry and, and find opportunities for you to serve him. That's not, never an issue. You know, but we have to come to that place of realizing that he is the Lord and that he doesn't need us. You know, the Lord didn't save us because he was a few short on his evangelism program and thought we could help out. You know, the Lord 
has brought us in by his grace, by his mercy. And he chooses to use us. And, and it's by his grace, you know, and it's in the same way that, you know, at times at home I've been mowing the lawn and one of the girls have come out and said, Daddy, can I help? And I thought, well, no, not really. But, you know, they, they kind of hold the thing and they're going to, then we're trying to mow the lawn and we're getting it wrong. Then we get a few flowers and, you know, fortunately we've got not much of a lawn. But you know the idea that sometimes children want to help and actually they're not helping. Um, but we let them do it because we love them and we want them to be part of what we're doing. Well, God's like that. God allows us to be part of the work that he's doing. It's not because he needs us. You know, we have to come to that place of realizing that if we are serving the Lord, it's because of his grace. It's because he loves us, because he wants to give us an opportunity to grow. It's because he wants to reveal more of himself to us. Again, it's not because he's short in numbers and needs us to help. And so Paul ends up fleeing in a basket from Damascus, um, and no doubt a, a, an important lesson he learns at this point, and spends the next 10 years or so in Tarsus. And this is where suddenly, no longer a member of the Sanhedrin, because he's now a Christian, he's got to find a job. And so Paul ends up starting to make tents. You know, and there's a few phrases and ideas that come out through Second Timothy that seemingly Paul alludes to that idea Paul will speak about rightly dividing the word of God. Well, at that time, tents were made typically out of animal skins uh, and so on. Uh, and it, the, the cuts had to be absolutely straight so that they could be stitched together uh, and make a perfect fabric for the, the outside of the tent and so on. Paul knew about these things. Um, and so Paul spends his time, again, a really important time. Probably frustrating because he wanted to be doing things. I don't know about you, I spent a, a period of time where I was very frustrated. I remember... Some years ago, being at a conference up at uh, uh, Bradford, the church in the way, the Calvary Chapel Church that's up there. Um, and I went to one of the pastors, one of the visiting pastors who was speaking there. Uh, and I just said, I really feel the Lord's going to use me, but I don't know why, and I'm frustrated. And, you know, and he just said, just wait. Just wait. He said, just pray. Just leave it with the Lord. He said, you know, it, it's of the Lord. He said, you know, unless the Lord builds a house, the labor's in vain. Um, and, you know, within a very short period of time, doors started opening, opportunities started being presented. Um, but it's always in the way that the Lord chooses and, you know, never in the way that we often plan either. Sometimes we have an idea of what we're going to do and how we're going to do things for the Lord. Um, very often it's very different from our own idea. Uh, the Lord knows what is best for us and how he wants to use us and how we'll glorify him. Well, after a while, Barnabas is sent to go and find Paul, and he brings him back to Antioch. Antioch, by this time, was really becoming the the, the center of the church. Um, you know, Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem was struggling. Um, they were struggling with poverty issues and so on. Uh, there was more persecution there. So a number of the, the believers had kind of settled and made their, their base in Antioch. And so Paul goes to bring him to Antioch to meet the believers. And really from there they start what we refer to as the first missionary journey. We looked at this previously, so I'm not going to go through all the details of where they visited and everything else. Uh, but that first missionary journey, a uh, really important time. Um, at the end of this, uh, we get this kind of council in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 15 is where we find that. Uh, that leads on to the second missionary journey. Uh, by the way, it was on the first missionary journey 
um, that Paul probably for the first time saw this young man, Timothy, who may or may not at that point have been a believer, just a young man at that point. Possibly uh, his mother, grandmother, they may have already been converted. If not, certainly as a result of Paul's first missionary journey, seemingly came to know the Lord. Um, but then after that council in Jerusalem, the question is about you know, the Gentiles and how they fit into the God's plan and so on. Uh, and they concur with Peter, who'd obviously been up to see Cornelius. And with Paul, who'd obviously gone that first missionary journey, that God had a plan for the Gentiles. And so Peter, in a sense, has this missionary to the, or this ministry going and preaching to the, the Jews of the diaspora, those that have been dispersed around uh, the Roman Empire at that time. Um, and Paul, uh, it was recognized, had this ministry to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so in that second missionary journey, as Paul comes now back, um, he, he joins up with Timothy, and Timothy then joins with Paul, travels with him, uh, and we see this relationship start to form from that point. Of course, they then go back, and that leads on finally to that third missionary journey. But eventually, Paul is arrested around about 58 AD in Judea. If you remember, they go back to Jerusalem, uh, and there's this big furor in uh, Jerusalem itself. Uh, Paul is arrested and taken in by the Romans for fear of the people trying to uh, kill him. Uh, and then he's smuggled out by night, uh, and then... Um, ends up down in Caesarea for two years, in a sense, waiting to be heard, waiting for a trial opportunity. While he's there, because he's a Roman, uh, and a Roman with interesting rights, if you remember we've already mentioned, in that first missionary journey, um, he comes to Cyprus and he meets an individual, the, the governor of the island, Sergius Paulus. And it seems from, from all that we know from, from history and everything else, and Bill Cooper makes a really great case for this, that Sergius Paulus adopted Paul. It's from that moment that Paul changes his name from Saul to Paul. Uh, and Sergius Paulus adopting Paul again afforded Paul even more rights under Rome and so on. And so Paul then appeals to Caesar. Um, that's kind of an irreversible process now. Uh, and we know that he's then, he preaches between, uh, before Felix and uh, so on, the governor there, but then eventually ends up on this boat, uh, shipwrecked en route to Rome, and then spends three months on the island of Malta. Fascinating um, passage we have at the end of the book of Acts, uh, and we find that Paul then spends his time under house arrest in Rome, and really that's where the book of Rome uh, kind of ties off. That's the conclusion of, uh, sorry, the book of Acts. Uh, that's where it finishes for us, uh, and it's there again that he writes these prison epistles we mentioned earlier: uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Uh, eventually, Paul is acquitted of charges and released. Uh, and that's when he writes First Timothy and Titus uh, from Macedonia. Uh, but again, he's later arrested and this time put in a dungeon. And that's where he writes Second Timothy. And apparently that seems to be the final letter that he writes. So that gives you kind of a, a brief overview of this man's life and the things that he did and so on. Uh, it's very interesting. We need to have that kind of context in view. When we look at the things that Paul says in 2 Timothy, considering his own situation and circumstance. So again, when about 67, arrested again. Uh, this time he's not just under house arrest with all the luxuries that were with that. He was actually in chains in the lowest part of the prison and so on, treated as a criminal. 
you know, and typically there'd have been very little light to read by, very little or no sanitation, and probably knowing that he was facing uh, death at this point. Uh, Clearly from the way he writes, that seems to be his understanding uh, that the end was near. We also find, because he makes a reference to it, that he was been deserted by all his associates in Asia Minor. Maybe seeing what had happened to Paul had just been too much for them. That they had abandoned the gospel. They didn't want that kind of thing to happen to them. They'd counted the cost and they didn't like what they saw. You know, sadly, the cares of this life often choke out the word of God. And people that are so invested in the things of this world, when there comes those challenges and are we prepared to stand up for our faith, you know, that's when it's hard. I mean, there are, I mean, it's been said many a time that people, a number of people are willing to die for their faith. The hard part is living for what we believe on a daily basis. And yet we find, we'll see this in chapter 4, verse 16, that he freely forgave the defectors. He says, may it not be counted against them. You know, that same kind of attitude of heart that Jesus had on the cross. You know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, again, even in those situations, Paul showing real grace. But no doubt there was real pain being betrayed and let down by people that had been close to him at various times. Well, Paul seems to have been beheaded in Rome in about 68 AD. Um, so it's just prior to that uh, that he writes Second Timothy. And as we said, it's his final communication uh, and these kind of deathbed statements of an importance uh, not attached to other comments. I think there's about 70 Greek words that Paul uses in Second Timothy that we've had nowhere else in Paul's writings. Um, there's, a, there's a passion, there's an intensity uh, in Second Timothy that we don't find elsewhere. It's interesting, if we were to look at Second Timothy and, kind of, and summarize the book, one word that would summarize it is loyalty. I think this is quite helpful to, to break down. You know, it seems to be based upon this. The first chapter is all about loyalty in suffering. That's what he's going to be saying to Timothy. You know, and how applicable to us. You know, with the challenges that we face as individuals, you know, uh, there's very few of us here this morning that haven't in some way or another got some sort of challenge or predicament or something that we're facing that we don't quite know how it's going to work out. But in that suffering, there needs to be that loyalty. And this is the one thing that we're going to see Paul really start to, to speak to Timothy about. It's almost a wake-up call to Timothy Because there's Paul in prison facing death. And he's going to be writing to Timothy saying, come on, Timothy, put yourself together. Now is not the time to quit. And you see from Paul's position, that confidence, that trust, encouraging Timothy to keep going. The second chapter is very much loyalty in service, in the ministry that he'd been called to. You know, so first thing really applies to our life in general, the first chapter very much, and then the second chapter in regard to our service. So we've got to be loyal in serving God. You know, God deserves and demands the best from us. You know, I, I love that verse in Romans chapter 12. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Where it says, I beseech you therefore, this is Paul speaking, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
the word in the Greek there is logical or logikos. You know, the idea is it's logical that we give God everything when we know what he's done for us. He says, I beseech you, I beg you, that you present your body the living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is of reasonable service. And that's what he's going to amplify here in the second chapter. And then, finally, loyalty in apostasy. And again, so applicable for the days in which we're living. Apostasy abounds all around us in all sorts of different ways. You know, and it's so sad when you look at the established church. You know, the world can do what it wants to do, fine. But the church, the church should be standing up for righteousness and justice. The word, the church should be standing on the word of God is compromising left, right and center. And it's such a, a sad situation that there are so few churches now that really believe and teach the word of God. There are, it just in the days of, as it was in the days of um, Elijah. Elijah thought he was the only one. And what does the Lord come back and say to him? No, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. You know, oh, the Lord's reserved those for him still. We don't need to worry. The, Lord's not, not, the, the kingdom of heaven is not going to suddenly come to a crashing halt because of the apostasy that's going on. No, no. But unfortunately, there is now a smaller number. And Jesus, didn't he say that when he comes, will he find faith? Will he find those that still believe, that hang on to the truth, that have not been prepared to compromise? It's an interesting question that Jesus posed. There is so much apostasy. And so many churches today are just a social club, just a place where people go and they meet and they say nice things and so on. And then the last part of the book, really, from chapter 4 to the end, it's kind of a switch, really. It's talking of the Lord's loyalty to his servants in desertions. You know, those who have been left and abandoned by others, by friends, by family, whatever. And it speaks of the Lord's loyalty. The first three chapters are loyalty to him, and the last portion of the book is really about his loyalty to us. And you won't get anything greater or stronger than his loyalty, the Lord's loyalty to his servants. Again, the, the book really is a book of triumph. In the midst of all of the, the problems that Paul was facing, I mean, this overtone of triumph just runs through. And it's Paul who's encouraging Timothy. You'd think it would be the other way around. But Paul is passing on this mantle to his son in the faith, urging him to persevere in strength and faithfulness. It is, as I said, intensely personal. It contains about 25 references to specific individuals, more so than any other book of the New Testament. So I want to talk a little bit about the church, because of course the church is the, 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 the backbone of, of what Paul is really writing to Timothy about here. To, to encourage him to carry on this ministry he had with his believe, these believers in Ephesus. And the church, we're told, in First Peter 2.9, is a holy nation. I mean, that really emphasizes our common citizenship in heaven. And we're talking about the true church. You know, in Matthew 13, Jesus spoke of the wheat and the tares. And, and we've got to understand that in the midst of the apostasy that's going on around us, that's exactly what we should be seeing, that there are wheat, there are tares, there are those that believe, there are those that are just in it for the ride or in it for whatever pleasure they can derive or comfort or whatever they can derive, but they're not really seeking the Lord. And always, in Matthew 13, the emphasis is on the Word of God. 
But the true church, the real wheat that will eventually be gathered into his barn, is told that we're a holy nation. We have this citizenship in heaven. Of course, the church is referred to as a kingdom. Again, it emphasizes the, the believer's common submission to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We have a king who is over every other power in this world. And Daniel speaks so much about this, and you heard a little bit about that last week. That our king is the king of kings. The priesthood. Again, the church is now seen as this priesthood. And this privilege we have of of serving God in this way. We have direct access to the throne. No longer do we have to be of a particular tribe of Israel. But all believers have access. That temple veil was torn in two. And we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Also, the church is spoken of as being a vine. I've said a number of times, actually, that there's three vines. And technically, I'm wrong because there's four. I mean, Israel is spoken of as a vine. They, they didn't do what they were supposed to do to represent God to this world. There's the false vine, which we read about in Revelation, and the vine of the earth, which really comes all the way down from Babylon down the way through. Uh, this is false religious system that has kind of is undercurrent throughout all of history. Uh, which is kind of creating these false religions and the the, the, the false path to, to God, which of course doesn't work. And then Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine, the genuine vine. And yet the church also are considered as a vine. Again, that we should bear fruit for him, that we should be representatives, ambassadors for him in this world. This idea of us being a temple as well. Again, the idea that we're being built together. Peter speaks about us being living stones. We're being built up together with Christ as the chief cornerstone. The church is spoken of also as being a body. Again, emphasizing the common life and the way that we are so dependent upon each other and ultimately dependent upon the head. You know, your body without your head doesn't function all that well. Um, and it's exactly the same. The church without Christ cannot function. And when we start removing Christ as the that that head of the church, well, the church doesn't function. And we're spoken of being a, an assembly. And again, this is emphasizing the believer's common calling to be gathered into the eternal presence of God. This great hope that we have. A flock, again, is another expression that is used of the church, uh, emphasizing, again, the fact that we are sheep. You know, sheep are, are easily led, um, are always in need of food and sustenance. You know, and that, that speaks so much of the church, the need, therefore, for shepherds to feed the flock and ultimately the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, to be the one who, to whom we all go as individuals for our food, for our nourishment, and so on. We need to be led by him. And again, we're a family. It emphasizes the intimacy, the care, the openness and the love that should exist within any body of believers. I praise God for what he's given us here. The love that we have one for another, the fact that we can pray, the fact that we can, you know, within a few moments update each other and let us know what's going on and be praying for things. And we see God working and doing things. Well, as I said, we should expect the apostasy spoken of throughout scripture to come. You know, and it is, if you like, an ominous cloud on the horizon. Uh, you know, Paul was speaking to Timothy about what was coming then, and of course we can see what's coming in our own day. 
It's important, though, just to say that apostasy is not due to ignorance. Um, it's deliberate error and heresy. It's intentional. It's people that have heard the truth, that reject it, that go in a different direction. You know, apostate is one who knows the truths of the gospel and the doctrines of faith and has repudiated them. They've rejected them in favor of other things. Again, that verse I mentioned a moment ago, Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? And this leads us then to these two departures that Scripture speaks of. One of them is the rapture. That's the departure of the saints from this world. And the other one is the departure from the faith. Now, going back to what I said a moment ago, Matthew 13, this is exactly what we see. Because we're told that when we get to the end times, the wheat and the tares grow together until the time of the harvest. I believe we're there. I believe we're in the time of the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, we're told that the tares are gathered into bundles to burn them. That happens first. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing the tares are being gathered together into groups. But the wheat is gathered into his barn. Two departings. The wheat, wheat depart and are taken to be with the Lord. The tares depart and ultimately they'll be judged. Those two departures I read of. And of course, it's not popular today. There are <coughs> those that are committed to a view that the goal of the church is to transform the world by tinkering with its social, political, and economic systems. That, that is so much of what we see coming from pulpits today. You know, that we've got to try and make the world a better place. And, you know, there's this nonsense that we're going to transform the world, and when the world is a better place, then Jesus will come back. You know, I'm sure you've heard of these uh, ideas, Kingdom Now theology, and so other different names has been given over the, the years. But these vain optimists uh, have not patience with the doleful words of 2 Timothy. We're going to look at as we go through as Timothy addresses, or Paul addresses these things. Uh, and again, um, the present times, the days we live in, seemingly demonstrate the accuracy of what Paul was saying. Paul spoke of what would come. We're right here. We're seeing it. It's real. With the cloud of apostasy on the horizon, both Paul and Peter emphasized the word of God in their respective swan songs, in their final letters. And I can't emphasize again just how important the word of God is. You know, and we praise God as a fellowship that we love God's word, we cherish it, we get to teach from it week by week. You know, but there are many churches that don't. There are many churches that they'll pick this up on a weekly basis and they'll read a portion of it. You know, a verse, and that will be really all they they touch. I, I may have shared with you before. There was a lady that came to work, uh, one of our suppliers for a while, um, and I've been chatting to her uh, on and off and trying to talk to her about the Lord. Uh, and she mentioned that she'd gone along to a particular church in London, which I'm not going to mention. Um, but at this particular church in London, which is very well known. Um, I, I said, oh, interesting, what, what happens? You know, the church, oh, we, we have a great time, we sing lots of songs and things. Uh, and then, you know, somebody get up, gets up and speaks a bit and things, and then, then, you know, I said, okay, I said, do you read the Bible at all? And she went, um, I think, think sometimes they do. That was her response. That, you know, this individual is going to church, and, you know, the Bible may fit in occasionally. Oh, how sad. You know, we, we, we should cherish this book. You know, I had the privilege last Sunday of showing with the congregation down there in, in Kent how this is so incredible. 
I mean, it's supernatural. It's not just a book put together by human authors. That There's patterns, there's designs, there's models in this that absolutely blow your mind when you realize that no man could have engineered what we have here. And God has given to this. You know, we said before that you know, the world spends millions and billions on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And we've got this book, which proves that it's from outside our time domain. You know, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says that God is outside of time. And he's given us his word. We've got a social gospel. J. Vernon McGee spoke of a sermonette preached by the preacherette to the Christianettes. Kind of quite like that. And this idea that good is better than evil because it's nicer and gets you into less trouble. Yeah, and that's pretty much the message of many churches. You know, the church is made up of mild-mannered men standing before a group of mild-mannered people urging them to be more mild-mannered. But where's the substance in that? Revelation 3, 15 and 16, Jesus said, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I word that thou art hot or cold. Hot's good or cold's good. He's speaking of the water that came in um, to these places uh, from Hierapolis and uh, so on. You know, the hot water that was coming from the hot springs was great, or the cold water that was coming out of the ground was great. But once it got tepid, it wasn't useful for anything. It was horrible. But he says, but you're neither hot nor cold. You're not useful for anything. If I'll spew you out of my mouth. It speaks very much of the, the church in these days. You know, and the church in these days is saying that I'm rich, increased with goods. I've got need of nothing. But it says, you know not the original, miserable, or sorry, wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou may be rich and white raiment that thou may be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thy eyes with eye salve that they may, thou may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then his final admonition in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, we're familiar with this verse, but what often is overlooked is the fact that Jesus is, in this verse, outside knocking. In all the previous letters, he's inside the church. In this final church age, Jesus is seen as being outside the church, knocking, wanting to, to come in. Revelation again 2 and 3 speaks often about the overcomers, those that would overcome. Well, we've got this psychological gospel and it speaks about how we should overcome, unfortunately. And it's about how we can think creatively and how we can think affirmatively or positively. This idea of positive thinking going on so much in the church, you know, that we're on our way upward and onward forever. You know, and yet we look around and we see the desperate decay of our society, and it does speak for itself. The church is in a mess. It needs Jesus. You know, the modern church preaches more on social relations, passivism, passivism, social justice, and all those kind of things. And it's really an instrument leading to Christian socialism. You know, but in contrast, when the true gospel is preached, men come to Christ and become members of God's family. You know, that, that's what we need. That's where we've got to get to. Martin Luther said this, and we're going to close here. He said, God creates out of nothing. Until man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. You know, and as a, a church, as individuals, we've got to come to that place where we just give up the right of ourselves to him. 
We trust him in all things, regardless of circumstances, believing that he really is the God that we know him to be when we're closest to him, as Oswald Chambers said. Trusting that he has all things in hand. Next week we'll, we'll pick up and we'll start our study proper in 2 Timothy. Um, so please read ahead. Uh, it's a great portion of scripture and there's so much there for us. You know, we are in the midst of all these things, the problems, the challenges, the apostasy and so on. And then the, our own challenges that we face. You know, this is a very timely study for us to go through. Um, so please do read ahead. Let's bow our hearts and just thank the Lord for this time. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have of being able to meet together in your name, Jesus. We thank you that we can study your word. And Lord, please just stir our hearts. Help us to understand, Lord, the days in which we live. Help us, Lord, to understand our own circumstances in the light of your grace. Lord, help us to realize that nothing happens to us that is not Father filtered, that you don't allow. Because, Lord, you said that all things, Lord, all things that happen, all things that go on and surround our lives are for the good of those that love you. Lord, you've bought us and you've paid the highest price. We now belong to you. And Lord, as such, you won't allow anything to touch us that is not in your will for us, for your purpose and your glory. So Lord, as Job said, yet though you slay me, will I trust you? Lord, give us this confidence and trust. Lord, as Paul was encouraging Timothy in these things, may we be encouraged also to fight this good fight in the days we have remaining. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.